thank you everyone for joining. Um, and like I said, I hope that uh, everyone is uh, staying safe and healthy with all your families. As part of the series, we are going to continue uh, this journey into the Catholic epistles um, that are in the second half of the New Testament. And today we're going to be going over um, the Catholic epistle uh, um, called First John. Um, and actually to start, I'm going to quote a verse from the epistle to the Hebrews, which may seem very strange considering that the topic at hand is the first epistle of St. John. But I, um, I couldn't help but recall this verse after having studied uh, first, first John in preparation for this talk. So the verse I want to start by quoting, and by the way, I'm using NRSV just in case some of the verses sound a little bit different from the New King James. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. This sharpness, I think, is the perfect characterization of the message of First John, of this epistle. Um, its message is seemingly very simple and incredibly straightforward, but um, the demand, and it's actually a single demand, that it makes of the believers pierces to the very core, to the very essence of who we are called to be as Christians. That single demand has the power to kindle an honest and lucid reckoning within the believer. Faced with the stark choice that the epistle presents us, we need to come to terms with whether or not we measure up to what we claim to be, children of God. So first, a background. Church tradition holds that this epistle was written by the same author of the Gospel of John, which is St. John the Apostle. Um, this is not a very difficult argument to accept because, you know, this epistle is full of what, is, what are called Johannine ideas. So, you know, ideas, statements, verses um, that are peppered throughout the, the epistle that bear an unmistakable uh, character of the teachings of St. John the Beloved. And I'm going to compare and contrast some verses from the gospel uh, versus some verses um, from the epistle, and you can kind of see the similarities. It's really quite striking. Uh, so we'll begin with John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. That idea is mirrored in the epistle of 1 John, or the first epistle of John, where it says, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we may live through him. And it's the same word, um, one, you know, the only begotten son or uh, uh, Um Another verse, this is my commandment that you love one another as I love you. This was in, you know, at the last supper where Jesus is giving his disciples the final commandment before his crucifixion. And in the first epistle of John, chapter three, verse 11, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Again, very similar terminology. Um, another one, John 19. Um, this is actually a very peculiar verse in, uh, in the Gospel of John. It's very memorable, this incident at the crucifixion, um, where it says, instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe 
his testimony is true and he knows that he tells the truth. So that's in the gospel. And again, this idea of the water and the blood is, you know, stated explicitly in the epistle um, in 1 John uh, chapter 5, verse 6, where he says, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and blood. So this idea of this moment in the crucifixion where water and blood come out of the side of Christ, the emphasis on the water and the blood being, you know, a characteristic defining moment is again touched upon in the epistle. So again, you know, the the, the Johannine character of, of the epistle is, is absolutely unmistakable. I don't think it can be disputed. And if we were to step back and ask the question, what is the what is the central central idea that the epistle kind of revolves around? Um, and honestly, you know, in my rather limited understanding of the epistle, having studied it, the, the central idea is the answer to this question. What does it mean to be saved? This is, of course, a highly controversial topic. It's by far, you know, it's the innermost um, core tenet underpinning the entire Christian faith. It ties together all of, understand, all of our understanding of who God is, the brokenness of the human condition, and how God you know, bent the heavens down, as the expression says, to fix this self-inflicted brokenness that we have. So what does it mean to be saved? Does being saved mean going to heaven uh, while not being saved or being not saved means going to hell? Does being saved mean that there's an itemized list of sins uh, for which there would be punishment, but Jesus endures the righteous wrath of the Father in our place. And how does one become saved? Is it through faith alone? Is it through works? Is it through, is it through the sacraments? You know, there are massive disagreements between Christian denominations on the answers to all of those questions. Um, there are disagreements within individual denominations. There are disagreements between individuals within the same denomination. Ask three cops what it means to be saved and you probably get four opinions as the, as the saying goes. But the first epistle of St. John makes a simple, compelling case for what it means to be saved. In 1 John 3.14, he says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. It is important here to note that the epistle makes it clear what, or more accurately, who life is. It's, life is not, a, it's not a concept or a state of being. It is actually the person of the Son of God. And that's why the epistle says, near the very, very beginning, Concerning the word of life, this life was revealed. We have seen it and testified to it and declared to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. This is obviously very, very relevant at the moment, given that we are in Advent season, that we are preparing to commemorate the nativity of Christ, the, the coming of the Son of God in the flesh. In fact, the epistle emphasizes the physical reality of the incarnation. So the, the epistle begins 
by him saying, we declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You know, it's amazing because this one verse right here immediately eviscerates and destroys two heresies regarding the nature of Christ. Uh, an ancient one that has disappeared and is no longer active, and another one that's, you know, still kind of, uh, kind of in play uh, to this day. So the first is docetism from doketo, which means to appear to, right? And it was a heresy that basically said that Christ never had a real physical body, but he only appeared to have one. And, you know, this verse says, no, we, we saw him, we touched him with our hands. And again, back to the idea of being, this being a very Johannine letter, you know, the, the incident with Thomas, you know, touching the wounds of Christ at the end of the Gospel of John, again, echoes of that here in the epistle. So first is the heresy of Docetism that says, no, we saw him, we touched him, we heard him speak. The second one is the Nestorian heresy, which claims that Christ has two natures that have distinct characteristics, united only in the person of Christ. This Christological controversy has roiled the church for 1,500 years, I'm counting. Um, and yet this ver verse makes the Orthodox teaching very, very clear. The word of life, the eternal life that was with the Father, again, this life is not a concept, it's a person, has become something that the apostles heard, saw, looked at, and touched with their hands. What stronger witness is there to the reality of the one incarnate nature of the Logos? He took flesh so that we can all see and touch him in the entirety of his being, not just the human part of him. Anyway, I digress. I just thought that that was uh, interesting. So back to this verse, which I think summarizes what the entire epistle is about. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Here, the idea is very clear. Christ is life itself. To pass from death to life is to be united with Christ. But the condition, the single demand that this epistle makes of us and which it emphasizes over and over and over is that the passing from death to life only comes through loving one another. To be saved is to be bound to life itself, which is Christ. This is what, this is the what, what is it to be saved? The how to be saved is through love. And we will soon touch upon what this love means and how it takes shape in actuality. The contrast in that verse between death and life highlights a recurring theme within the epistle. It's a stark, uncompromising dualism. There is this sharpness in this distinction between the two sides, which is why I picked that verse from Hebrews that says that the, the, the word of God is piercing like a sharp two-edged sword. And I think this epistle really makes that distinction very clear. There's God and there's the devil. There is, there's Christ and there's Antichrist. There is life versus death. There is light and darkness, righteousness and sin, truth versus lies. There are the children of God and there are the children of the devil. And there is a clear line that separates the two sides. 
all black and white. There is no gray zone. There is no middle ground. You have to pick sides. We have to pick sides. This is, this is a challenge. It's tough. This is the demand that this epistle makes of us. It's simple, but it cuts to the innermost heart. We are either children of God, or God forbid, children of Satan. That's basically what the epistle is saying. To claim to be one, but to do the actions of the other, simply you cannot have that situation. You're either on this side or on that side, and you have to decide, and you have to pick. The word of God in this epistle convicts us. We cannot have it both ways. As the expression say, you can't eat your cake and have it. In the cosmic battle between God and the devil, between evil and good, we have to choose sides and we have to commit to living that way. With so much at stake, what is kind of the tipping point that tips us in, you know, to one side or to the other? It is the love of other people. That's it, as far as this epistle is concerned. That is what tilts us in this direction or in that direction. Imagine a ball at the top of a hill, exactly that center. What's going to push it in one direction or the other into the valley? You know, for the for the engineers, and this is a famous problem about entropy. But uh, so, what is going to tip us one way or the other? It's whether or not we love others. That's it. So you see, the apostle in chapter three, verse ten, he says. The children of God and the children of the devil are revealed in this way. All who do not do what is right are not from God, nor are those who do not love their brothers and sisters. In chapter 3, verse 14, whoever does not love abides in death. All who hate a brother or sister are murderers. And you know that murderers do not have eternal life abiding in them. Chapter four, chapter 4, verse 20 to 21. To those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. Simple, right? Straightforward. Why though? Why? Why is love the? Why is love the, the fulcrum, the focal point, the deciding factor? The argument that the epistle is making is that when we love others, we imitate Christ, who loved us first and gave Himself for us. And to imitate Christ is to be saved, to be bound up with Him in His life. In the orthodox understanding of salvation, so clearly articulated in this epistle, we are called to be icons of Christ, who in turn is an icon of the Father. If we are to be saved, then we must become true reflections of his image. And the reality is that the love of Christ is complete and overwhelming. It is a perfect love that is proactive, sacrificial and not expecting anything in return to understand the extent to which we are called to love 
we must look to Christ who was humiliated and executing for declaring a truth that he was the son of God. If Christ willingly accepted that in spite of having done nothing wrong, and in fact, actually for the opposite, for having spoken truth, if he accepted this death out of his overwhelming love for us, to what extent are we willing to love others? So in chapter four, four verse 10, the apostle says, in, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Love it, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. The love of Christ was not a passive love. It wasn't a mere expression of emotion, I love you. It wasn't just words. It was active. The economy of salvation, this millennia-long plan to effect salvation for us, was thrown in action. The incarnation itself is active, right? The hymn says, um, you know, for the Feast of the Nativity, the one without flesh became flesh. The one outside of time became subject to time. It's as if God said, I will not just tell you that I love you. I will show you that I will love you. I will bend the entire arc of history to show you that I love you. And so the epistle exhorts us likewise to love actively, not passively. So in chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, he says, How does God's life abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. The fathers, having reflected on this verse, they had a few thoughts. So, St. John Chrysostom said, it is not a love, it is not enough to have good intentions. You must also put them into effect with genuine willingness and a happy heart. The Venerable Bede says, if a brother or sister has nothing and cannot even find enough to eat, we ought to give them the basic necessities of life. Likewise, if we notice that they are deficient in spiritual things, we ought to guide them in whatever way we can. Of course, we must be sincere in doing this, not looking for praise from other people, not boasting, and not pointing out that others who are richer than we, than we are have not done nearly as much. For someone who thinks like that is full of wickedness and the gift of truth does not dwell in him, even if it appears on the surface that he is showing love to others. So that's, that's a pretty high standard, but that's the guidance here, right? It's in, you know, it's love shown materially, it's love shown emotionally in terms of supporting others spiritually in their struggles. And I think with everything going on in the world right now, people that have been out of work for months on end, running out of money, not able to pay rent, not able to feed their kids, not able to pay for medicines. There's a lot of room for all of us collectively to act 
on this love that we are supposed to have for others. And in my searching, you know, searching for what the father said about, uh, about this verse, I think I finally found the first use of this expression. Uh, it's by Hilary of Arles. Actions speak louder than words. So apparently that expression comes from the fathers who would have known. Um, so how far, how far should we allow our love for others to take us, right? Because it's like, that's, that's a question. It's like, okay, I get it. How far am I being asked to go with love? Well, the answer is in a question, which is how far did Christ go? And so in 1 John 3.16, he says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. That's the standard here. That, that's, that's what he's holding us up to. Um, that's, that's stark. It's tough. That's, that's why I began with that quote from Hebrews. You know, it's, it's amazing because it's, you know, it's, this is challenging. It's one is either allied with God, becomes an imitator of Christ who is willing to lay down his or her own life for others, or they are allied with the devil. I mean, that is, that is what the epistle is saying. That's it's pretty scary, at least at face value. And I think the apostle recognizes that. He recognizes the burden that he is putting on those who would hear and, and read this teaching, left our own devices, as the apostles had told Christ, you know, when he taught them about uh, the possibility of rich people getting to the kingdom of heaven, who can be saved. Um, but we must recall that God's love is overwhelming. God's love is perfect. It is able to support our inability to live up to this standard fully. Recall that sin, as defined in this epistle, is failing to love others actively. That is actually the definition of sin in this epistle. And what happens if we sin? Chapter 2, verse 1. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Christ's love atones for our failure to love, as long as we strive to imitate him in his love. Like I said at the start of this, the, the epistle draws the sharp line between two sides. And it really invites us to ask ourselves an honest question, which side will we choose? From the side of God, Christ, light, life through active love, or on the side of the devil, darkness and death? The choice itself is easy, but the consequences of making the choice are difficult but we must trust the love of God to carry us through them. All glory and honor and praise be to God and his holy church to the ages of ages. Amen.